The New Yorker magazine has called Wolfgang Muchspiel a shining light among today's jazz guitarists. The Wolfgang returns to the trio format with Angular Blues, his fourth ECM album as a leader. He's here with us today to discuss the recording. Hi Wolfgang, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hello and thanks for having me. I believe this is your 24th recording as either a leader or sideman, is that right? You know what, I did actually lost count. I think it's more, but yeah, I've done a lot of albums. Was your introduction to music through the violin and then you moved to the guitar at the age of 15? That's right. My family is a very musical family. My father was an amateur musician who was conducting several choirs and I'm the youngest of four kids, and so there was a lot of music at home, and uh, I, I started to play violin when I was six. And we kind of played together a lot as siblings, classical music, but also with my brother, who's two years later, my brother Christian. We did a lot of improvising with whatever instruments we had at our disposals and gadgets that we had. and. We didn't know anything about jazz, of course, at this point, but we just played like kids play. So that was a, um, a nice uh, introduction to music. Bill Evans also started playing the violin. That was his first instrument. Do you feel like the violin shaped your musical life at all, given that that's how you started out? Probably, you know, because I was into it heavily, it was really my wish to start playing. There was a deal at home that I could get that instrument and they would arrange lessons for me. But the deal was that I have to practice one hour a day. Otherwise, they don't buy me their violin. So it was kind of strict, but at the same time, you know, it got me going because I think at age six, rarely does a kid really want to practice. A kid maybe wants to play the instrument, but practicing is another story. So there was a loving but strict education behind the violin and that really led to a kind of deep relationship to the instrument. I loved it until I stopped loving it and then I quit, which was sort of a, an act of rebellion against my parents, which had to happen. But I soon found a guitar afterwards, so I could just keep on going with music. And you were born in 1965, so by the time you were 15, it was around 1981, soon after ECM really started to get going. Were you in love with ECM recordings just like the rest of us? Absolutely. The first period of jazz, the first discoveries were through the label ECM and all of my heroes were, or most of them were recording for that label. I think it shaped a lot of my view of this music and also some people that I got to hear on these albums became very important to me. I met them later and I played with them later so that was a huge thing for me to listen to these albums and kind of internalize them and then later many many years later meeting some of the artists and playing with them so was my window into jazz definitely. Angular Blues follows your two acclaimed quintet releases for ECM, Where the River Goes and Rising Grace, as well as your 2014 trio debut as leader, Like Driftwood. As a leader, what are some of the differences in planning out a trio recording versus working with a quintet or a quartet or even a larger or a smaller group as you've worked with all of these configurations? 
Well, the first step is to imagine the musicians and to write for them. It inspires me to imagine them playing the music that I write. Like, I really imagine them playing that note and this note and standing here or there. Sometimes I even imagine concrete playing situations. And of course, with the trio, a lot of the material that I write, you know, is supported and surrounded by the bass and the drums. But it's pretty much that material harmonically. Whereas in the quintet, such free and, and adventurous players as Brad Meldo and Ambrose, there's an element of surprise that you don't even want to calculate. So you basically want to leave enough space for everybody to make his contribution because these contributions are priceless. And as a jazz composer, you want to invite them to participate. You don't want to write too much. Create a specific room with your composition in which this conversation with everybody can take place. I know you kind of just answered the question, but even when you've got the same configuration, when you're in a trio format, so for instance on Like Driftwood, where you use Larry Grenadier versus Scott, how do the different players affect how the recording will come out? Yeah, well, they affect it completely because the way I improvise is basically depending on the other musicians, what they play. So I'm really not good at just laying down some kind of solo no matter what's going on underneath. I really need this presence of the others, you know, if, and if I wouldn't want to be in touch with that conversation, then I might as well play solo, which is also fun. But once you play with other people, you know, that kind of open channel with everybody is super important and inspiring. So of course, since Scott has another way of playing, another sound, different ideas, you know, a different way to deal with the rhythm than Larry. It shapes the music very much, but I knew that it was caught on this album, so I also wrote in that way and imagined the, the music with him. And of course, the album features Scott Colley on bass along with your longtime collaborator, Brian Blade, on drums. It's a super luxury to play with Brian Blade because he embodies presence and awareness. He will completely react to what I play, completely react to the vibe of the tune, and he will support, but he will also provoke when it's needed. For example, he makes a big difference whether I play acoustical guitar or electric guitar. So he has a very different sound that accompanies those different instruments. I never talked about this with him, but it's obvious that he does that. Then there's this gorgeous sound he gets out of his drum set and then, you know, playing a swing tune like Ride that we have on the album, you know, kind of up-tempo rhythm changes, you know, with Brian and Scott, it's just super luxurious for me. I'm very happy to have this long collaboration with him, but also with Scott, who I also met in the 90s. Many musicians I play with, I have long relationship with, and I, most of them I met when, when I was in this United States, you know, I spent 15 years there. First, I studied in Boston at the New England Conservatory with Mick Goodrick, and Mick Goodrick was a fantastic teacher. He was also the reason I went to Boston. And then two years later, I went to Berkeley, and then I'm studying and then moving to New York. So that was a very important time in my life, and uh, most musicians I, I work with, uh, I met then. So it was a beautiful thing for me that happened. 
Now you recorded the album in Tokyo and I think you did something really smart. You booked the session after three nights at the Cotton Club in Tokyo. So I imagine you guys were in great shape coming into that recording. Yes, we really were. We had played six sets of this music and we had only one day to record this in Tokyo and you know, with getting there and setting up and everything. So it was basically an afternoon. We just played every song twice and that's it. That became the recording. And then Manfred Eicher from ECM selected the tunes because we recorded many more tunes than that, uh, actually four more. And he selected the tunes and he mixed it with me and he did the sequence of the album, which I really love. Yeah, well, it was a kind of lucky moment and I just wanted to capture the moment after these gigs felt good, you know, the, it flowed and we had fun with the music and I thought let's just stay one more day and, and record and make sure we document this. So let's get into the tracks a bit. The first three are acoustic guitar and then after that you're playing electric. You recorded two standards, Cole Porter's Everything I Love and I'll Remember April. first time that you've recorded standards on an ECM album, is that right? Yes, that's one reason, absolutely. And then we did play in a jazz club and I played with those two amazing musicians. And I had worked on standards and with standards for a long time, but I rarely recorded them and rarely played them in concerts, almost never. But I always had it going and this was a nice way for me to show that part and it was a great situation to do it with those musicians. The core of my music is not standards, but it's an important aspect for a jazz musician, definitely for somebody from Europe. When I started to get into jazz, I had only played classical music, basically. So I had to make up a lot of ground when I was a teenager. And so I got into standards and kind of looked where this music comes from. And that's also the reason why I went to the States, in order to, you know, see how does the music sound there. So standards have kind of been part of me for many years. So the album opens up with Wondering and you had Scott in mind on this and even wrote a bass melody for that tune, is that right? Yes, exactly. And I really imagine Scott's warm liquid sound on this melody.
title track, Angular Blues. is titled for its rhythmic modulations and strange breaks. Exactly. It's kind of a odd tune for me because usually my writing, especially lately, is kind of round and flowing. And this, this tune is definitely has a lot of stops and starts and strange breaks. And this shattered vibe is also something that continues into the solos you know obviously we don't just make a cut and then play a regular blues it's still going on this kind of start and stop and, and angular atmosphere and uh, i was actually inspired partly by an album of chicoria three quartets and also by some monk when i wrote this song and uh, took a while to get it going in the, in the trio. There's a right balance between angular and, and flowing. It's not an easy tune to learn. So the first two tracks, Wondering and Angular Blues, feature you on acoustic guitar as well as this third track, Hettingrifa, which is really pretty and a really pensive song. Well, Hüttengriffe is a strange word. It's hard to translate to English. I think the closest I could come to would be campfire chords. And this really deals with the very first chords that one learns on the guitar. The first A minor voicing that one learns and the first G and the first C and those chords with which you can basically get through most tunes, you know. This tune really plays with this idea of this simple beginning of learning something. It's definitely the simplest song I've ever written because we don't really do much with it. We don't really try to improvise on it. We just play it again and again with different slight variations and then it kind of takes on a big space. The musicians embraced it because I was very unsure about that song. I almost didn't want to include it in the program when we first rehearsed, because I thought it's too simple, it's like nothing, it's just like a few chords, I can't present that to them. And then when I did, they liked it the most. So they insisted on, on playing it on, on every set.
then from this point on it seems like the album now you're playing electric starting with Camino very fluid in its phrasing yes that's opening the electric world but in the beginning I still play this intro with finger picking on the right hand so it has a connection to the acoustic guitar and then slowly in the solo it kind of becomes really electric and it's sort of a chord progression that I liked actually inspired by some of the music that Brad Meldau writes and it's a memory of a walk I did with two friends. Camino is the word for a certain path in Europe that leads to Santiago de Compostela in Spain and we walked this path for a few weeks together and the memory of this walk and these friends turned into that song.
And then Ride seems to have sort of a bebop rhythm changes kind of element to it. Exactly, it's just a head on rhythm changes essentially. You know, I like to play rhythm changes and I can't wait to play this music again with them. That's like one of those things when you have Brian and Scott playing up tempo rhythm changes here, basically heavenly. first standard on the album which is Cole Porter's Everything I Love. Mm -hmm. 
I believe you said that your first influence on this tune was hearing an early Keith Jarrett recording. I don't remember on which record it is, but it's sort of a loose and relatively fast version of it. It's a, a song I like to play on, cool standard. Beauties of playing a standard is, of course, that since many people know those melodies, you don't really have to exactly reproduce any other versions. It's all about your own approach to them and what happens in the moment. So that was kind of an inspiring world to get into with those two musicians. Thank you. 
two tracks are the two canon tracks. quite a few canons at some point because I got interested in that technique because it's such a strict composing technique and uh, I realized that I can also play canon with you know using a delay because a canon is nothing else but a delay one voice being repeated a bar or two bars later so in the trio version it's a canon in 6-8 and uh, the head is sort of canonic but then on the solos we open it up to other types of improvisation it's not a strict canon from beginning to end but I do use my delay to play the canon I have a kind of a way of playing with the delay and the band where I can tap the tempo of the delay you know according to what tempo the, the band plays so I can sort of incorporate it live. We don't have to follow any kind of set rhythm. It's still a spontaneous interaction.
then you end the record with the second standard, I'll Remember April, and um, I believe you said that your first experience with this tune was from a Frank Sinatra recording. Yes, I heard that one on a Frank Sinatra recording first, but then of course I heard also different other versions. I remember hearing a really nice Kurt Rosenwinkel version once. It's also, you know, kind of a peculiar tune, funny in a way, funny melody. In our version, it became all about this kind of vamp-like feeling that opens the tune and then at the end it's repeated and I don't really solo much. It's mostly the head and the vamps and the bass solo. Scott has a beautiful solo on that on that song. So yeah, we, we found a address for this song that we liked. You've worked with so many incredible musicians as a sideman and now you're a leader on multiple recordings. Which do you prefer? Well, you know, lately I've done a lot of stuff with my own projects. It's also totally uh, fascinating and great to be a sideman if the project is something that you're interested in. And of course, it comes with a completely different attitude. You're not responsible for everything. You, you just show up and play. So that's a beautiful thing. But I think the last 10 years or so, I've been mostly involved with my own projects, but I'm totally open to being a sideman again. So whatever happens, uh, as long as the music attracts me, you know, I don't really care if I'm the, the leader or the sideman. Well, Wolfgang, I want to congratulate you on a great career and a really wonderful album. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Well, thanks a lot. It's been fun to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Max. Thank you.